Well, good morning. It is a blessing to worship God together this morning. We just sang the words, come, behold the wondrous mystery, Christ the Lord upon the tree in the stead of ruined sinners. I love that line. Hangs the lamb in victory, but no grave could e'er restrain him. Praise the Lord, he is alive. That was very explicitly what we talked about last week. Uh, So it is, in fact, uh, it feels like coming down off of a mountain to go from 1 Corinthians chapter 15 with those themes to another set of genealogies. But that is where we find ourselves today. And what we discover is that uh, these are no mere genealogies, but in fact, as we'll see today, Christ is all over the place, even in a passage like what we see today. So it's background material, really, for what we looked at last week. So if you will, please go with me to Genesis 25, verses 1 to 18. We are halfway done with Genesis For some of you, that's uh, great news. For some of you, not so great. But we are halfway there. And uh, we find ourselves today at, I think, a crucial transition. The title for the sermon this morning is A Finale of Faithfulness. And so, uh, in order to introduce the the content of the sermon today, or the, the study that we'll be doing of this passage, I want to just substantiate that title. Why is it that I am entitling today's sermon, A Finale of Faithfulness, or really entitling this passage as we study it, A Finale of Faithfulness. So first, why finale? Today we come to the end of a major section in the book of Genesis. We know, looking back, that the first major section of the book is chapters 1 to 11, and those were very interesting chapters. And in fact, that's why we, we're really only at chapter 25 right now is because we, we spent so much time there in those 11 chapters, particularly in creation. The first, the creation and the fall. The first three chapters of Genesis took quite a while to go through and to dig into. But in those first 11 chapters, we had creation, fall, flood, and then the Tower of Babel. And that really is a distinct unit. And I shared with you at that point that I had thought at at one stage about only doing a a sermon series on Genesis 1 to 11. And I'm very glad that we decided against that to continue on and go ahead and do all of Genesis. Because we see the ways that these various sections hang together. So the first is 1 to 11. The second major section then runs from chapters 12 to 25. The life of Abraham. That's where we have been since chapter 12. And here, our text for today in chapter 25, we read of Abraham's death. So this is a crucial moment for us. We've been with Abraham now for quite some time. And it's interesting to note that this period from chapter 12 to 25, from Abraham's call in chapter 12 to Abraham's death in chapter 25 amounts to 100 years of time. He is 75, we're told, in chapter 12. When, God, when he leaves Mesopotamia and comes into the promised land, he's 75. And then we're told here today that he dies at 175 years. 
So what we're coming to today is the last act. This is the final scene of this 100-year story. It's interesting to think that all the stories we've looked at since chapter 12 really are 100 years of time. And we've seen how we've jumped a number of decades throughout this period, but it's 100 years of time. This is the final scene, the finale of Abraham's story in chapter 12. But why am I calling it a finale of faithfulness? Why faithfulness? Well, for starters, it is abundantly clear that God's faithfulness, his trustworthiness, his reliability has been the main theme of Abraham's story throughout. In fact, if there's one thing that you have gotten out of this story, all the way back to chapter 12, I hope that it has been this main idea, this main theme, that God is faithful. We saw this with the summary of Abraham's servant in chapter 24, verse 27. And I'm going to be referring to a number of passages in Genesis today. So if you want to, just kind of flip through your Bible there and you can read these. But back in chapter 24, verse 27, this is what Abraham's servant says there on his mission to find a wife for Abraham's son Isaac. This is how he reflects on the life of Abraham and God's dealings with him. Blessed be the Lord. The God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. Do you see that? That's his summary comment. That's his summary assessment. As he looks back over the life of Abraham, that's the word or one of the words that captures how God has related to him. Faithfulness. God has been faithful to him. And from chapter 12 onwards, everywhere we've looked, this has been the theme all throughout. The God of Abraham is a promise-making and promise-keeping God. The God of Abraham. So when we come to the end of the story, to the account of Abraham's death here in chapter 25, we should not be surprised to find that the text is dripping, literally dripping with God's faithfulness, even in genealogies. And I would say today, especially in the genealogies, we see it dripping with God's faithfulness. And that's exactly what we see here. In this description of Abraham's death, burial, and descendants, it is as though Moses, the author of Genesis, is tying together all the promises and fulfillments into a tight knot as Abraham dies. That's what we have before us today. And this knot of divine faithfulness involves three major cords of promise. And that's what you'll see as you look in your bulletin. The three points that we'll look at today, I think, are three cords of promise that are tied together in this final scene, this last act of Abraham's life, into a tight knot of divine faithfulness. Here's what they are. First, the nations. Second, the air. And third, the land. The nations, the air, and the land. But before we dive in to this finale, 
we need to understand something very important for us. And that is that this finale is also a, a bridge. There is a sense in which this is not a finale at all. We come to the end of Abraham's life, and so we must consider it, consider it kind of the end of a chapter, really, in many ways. But what we learn is that this is a bridge. It's a bridge to the next generation. It's a bridge to the rest of redemptive history. And what we need to see for us, that it is a bridge for our individual walks with God. This finale of faithfulness is also a bridge of faithfulness that carries us back to this faithful covenant-keeping God. So if you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Genesis 25, verses 1 to 18. This is God's word, perfect and profitable for his people. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shuak. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Asherim, Letushim, and Leumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanok, Abidah, and Eldaah. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There, Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Lahiroi. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Abil, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tema, Jeter, Nafish, and Kedemah. These are the sons of Ishmael. And these are their names, by their villages and by their encampments. Twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael. 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt, in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. You can go ahead and be seated. Those of you going to gospel community group, don't let your gospel community group leader put that off on you to read through all of those names. They have to do that this week, read through all those very foreign names. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his blessing on our time and that he would use his word, even something seemingly so obscure, so distant from us, that he would use this to bring life to our deadness. Let's pray. Father God, we 
are so grateful to be here and to sit under your life-giving word. God, we know that it was through your word that you made the heavens and the earth. You said, let there be light, and there was light. And as we consider that, Father, we, we recognize as we come to your word this morning, we're not coming to an ancient history lesson. We're not coming to learn something that we can uh, check a box and, and develop ourselves intellectually. We're not coming here just to grab a few nuggets for life so that we can be more prudent practitioners of life. Father, we are coming here to encounter you through your life-giving, effectual, powerful word. We praise you for that, God. You have been good to us. We will stand before you one day grateful that we have had an opportunity like this to hear your word read and preached and sung and visualized in the Lord's Supper. Father, we thank you for this time. We pray that we would be good stewards of it, each of us in our own minds, that we would, we would listen and think, that we would pray, that we would meditate. Father, that the words that go out would settle on our hearts and bring change. Father, would you protect us from distraction and guide us in your way? Would we be those who delight in the law of the Lord and who meditate on it day and night? And would what we do here now be just a part of that larger story of a life devoted to your word? Roots deep in the earth, drinking from the streams of living water. Father, thank you for each other. We thank you that we have brothers and sisters in Christ. As we look at each other's faces this morning, we are reminded that we have a family, that we are part of a family. And God, we pray that we would, our hearts would be bound together, that we would be useful to each other, that we would be an encouragement to each other, that we would not think only about our own interests, but about the interests and needs of others. Father, help our religion to be pure and undefiled before God that we would abstain from fleshly lusts and that we would show kindness and compassion to those in need. Thank you, Father, for this church, for these people. And we pray, God, that we would grow more and more in our unity. And we pray that this text today would bind our hearts to you and bind our hearts to one another as we study it. In Jesus' name, amen. So here we have, as I said before, these three chords of promise that come together into this tight knot of divine faithfulness here. And the first we're going to look at is the nations. The nations. Aside from the death of Abraham itself, the most obvious feature of this passage is that it begins and ends with the genealogy. So at the beginning, we have Abraham's sons through Keturah. And I won't read all of those names again for all of our sake. But Keturah is one who appears to be a wife taken by Abraham in the latter decades of his life after the death of Sarah. Six sons are mentioned along with some of their descendants in these verses. 
in order to show the proliferation. I think that's really what's going on here, is that uh, the author is trying to show us not just these six descendants, but to give us a sense for how many descendants this really amounts to over time. The proliferation of these descendants of Abraham through this latter year's wife, Keturah. And these sons give rise to various Arab peoples who are living near in the area of Israel. And then, so that's at the beginning. At the beginning, we have Keturah's sons. And then at the end, Ishmael is reintroduced. And we haven't seen Ishmael in in a while, but now he's introduced here at the burial of Abraham. And then at the end, we get this genealogy. Ishmael was Abraham's son through Hagar. So you remember back in chapter 16, when we had Abraham and Sarah are having to wait. God has promised them a descendant, but they are getting older and older and older. And Sarai is is barren. She cannot have children. And so she concocts this plan. She goes to Abraham and says, hey, I've got this idea. How about you take my servant as your wife and I will have a son through her. Well, it actually works, but it doesn't work. It doesn't work out. And it's one of those moments of weakness in the life of Abraham and Sarah. One of those moments of feeble faith. And Ishmael is born a son there, and he's sent off later on once Isaac is born. And we see here that Ishmael's descendants are named. We have 12 sons. Verse 16 says, 12 princes according to their tribes. And it's interesting that this is an exact fulfillment of what we read back in chapter 17, verse 20. He shall father 12 princes. So God had already told Ishmael or told uh, Abraham that his son Ishmael would not be the heir. His son Ishmael would not be the one through whom the blessing would continue. But God assured Abraham, the father, that his son Ishmael would be provided for, that he would be taken care of. And in that passage where God tells him that, or that period where God tells him that, he says he will have 12 princes come from him. And that's what we see here. These sons of Ishmael settled in the northwest area of the Arabian Peninsula. So really what we're reading here today in Genesis chapter 25 uh, are the beginnings of the peopling of the Arab world. We have the descendants of Abraham through Keturah and the descendants of Abraham through Hagar. So now, we have to ask, why? Why are these genealogies given? And I think even more importantly, why is it that these genealogies are given in this place, in this way? In other words, why are they bracketing the death of Abraham? We got this genealogy at the beginning, and then we got this genealogy at the end, and then right smack in the middle of it is the death of Abraham. Abraham, why is that the case? Answer, they show the fulfillment of one of the major promises that God made to Abraham. Look with me at chapter 17, verses 4 to 6. Chapter 17, 4 to 6. This is what the Lord had spoken to Abraham. One of the many things God had said to him. Chapter 17, verses 4 to 6. Behold, my covenant is with you. And you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. And that means father of a multitude. 
For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Do you hear that language? A multitude of nations. Not just the first thing we heard back in chapter 12. I will make you into a great nation. But here in chapter 17, it's not just a singular great nation. It's a multitude of nations. I go on. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make you into nations. And kings shall come from you. So we see there that God had promised distinctly to Abraham that he would have, that many nations would come from him. And so it, it's, it's a beautiful picture here that right bracketing the, the death of Abraham, we've got this proliferation of peoples all over the Arabian world. These many nations. But what does this mean for us? What do we do with these obscure genealogies? How do we take this in to our own lives? Well, First, back to the basics. Here is another illustration of the fact that God keeps his promises. And in fact, here's the thing that we learn as we go through the Bible. Oftentimes, we are being drawn back to the same basic truths. All throughout scripture, that all throughout the Bible, we get these various illustrations. And the Old Testament is particularly good for this. All through the Old Testament, we get these these little pictures, these little illustrations of the same set of basic truths. But what we know as Christians is that we cannot be reminded of this truth enough. We can't be reminded enough of the fact that God is faithful. We see all around us people who are not faithful. We see in our own lives and in our own families unfaithfulness. We see in our own hearts unfaithfulness in various ways. God is the only reality who is faithful. And what I would submit to you is that that this is the main basis for our relating to God. And here's what I mean. Romans 4, verses 20 to 21, Paul says this. No unbelief, he's describing Abraham. Listen carefully to this. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. There's that word promise. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And let me tell you why that's so important. Is because in chapter 4 of Romans, Paul is describing what it means to be a believer. He's looking back at Abraham and he's describing Abraham as one to whose account righteousness was reckoned. And he's describing Abraham as the quintessential typical believer. We are like Abraham as believers. And what we need to see is that Abraham's entire universe, his entire world, his entire worldview was centered on God's promises. You see what Paul is saying there in Romans 4, which means that at the very center of every Christian life is a God of promise whom we must trust. Do you see that? It's not at the center of every Christian life is our our feelings. Our feelings are fickle. And oftentimes we may not feel God's presence or we may not feel like serving God or we may not feel the Christian life going well. But as Christians at the center of the Christian life is not feelings. It is trust in the promises of God. The Holy Spirit who lives in us, is the one who gives us joy and hope in 
those promises. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it looks like to be a Christian. So I ask you this, if the promises of God, if that's a foreign concept to you, or it really doesn't register, or it doesn't mean anything to you, this would be an opportunity to get alone with the Lord and search your heart and ask yourself, am I really in the faith? Am I really a Christian? If the promises of God are as nothing to me, this is at the very core of the Christian life. But there's another implication for us, I think, as we consider this faithful God who keeps these promises. And it's this, that this multitude of families, of peoples, of nations, is ultimately a pointer to the multitude of nations who will become Abraham's children by faith in Christ. And here's what I'm saying. These obscure and distant genealogies are actually pointing to us. They are anticipating us. How so? Well, here we have earthly descendants. We have Abraham, and he's given rise to these many nations and all of these peoples who will go and people the land. And what that is really doing is pointing to the ultimate fulfillment of that, which is that there will be many nations who will gather around the throne of God as offspring of Abraham by faith, worshiping God. We are the many nations. We are representative. Here's a local church of the many nations who will be worshiping God as children of Abraham. Revelation 7, 9 to 10 says, John, this is what John sees at the end of time. After this I looked, and behold, a great, isn't it amazing to think that he is actually seeing us? He, he's seeing us. I mean, who knows? Maybe John saw your face. Your face in this vision. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Will you be there? Or let me say it this way. Were you there in John's vision? And as we think about Christ being the offspring of Abraham, that brings us to our next point, which is the heir. So we see the nations. Now we need to see very specifically the heir. If you're following me, we're looking at God's faithfulness. And the first Cord of promise we have here in this tight knot is the nations. Now we have the air. One of the most exciting aspects of studying the early chapters of Genesis is that we get to follow the theme of the seed. This is one of my favorite themes in the Bible. This is something that before preaching Genesis, this was, this was smaller to me, much smaller to me personally. I, I had studied this in seminary and I had even, I remember, I actually I visualized taking tests and studying for exams where these sorts of things were, were a big part of it. But this was much smaller to me in my understanding of God and of Christ and of the Bible and how it all fits together before preaching through this much of Genesis so far. The theme of the seed has become for me incredible. The offspring. Genesis 3.15. 
Adam and Eve have sinned against God. And God says to the serpent, as a matter of condemnation and judgment upon Satan, who took the form of a serpent. But Adam and Eve are listening. So it is an indirect promise to them and to us. And here's what the Lord said to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. That's a mortal wound. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's a temporary wound. That's the cross. He's risen. Satan will be destroyed. So we see in Genesis 3.15, we see this beginning of the search for the seed and the genealogies in Genesis 1-11 to are moving us along in the search. It's like hide and go seek, really. As you go through the genealogies of Genesis 1-11, through you are, you are looking for the seed. Is it Enoch? Walks with God, take it. No. Is it Noah? No. It's none of these. Who is the seed? Where is the one who will defeat the devil and deliver humanity? The line of the seed goes from Adam to Seth to Noah to Shem and then to Abraham. But then in chapter 12, the author stops. He stops. No more genealogies for now. He stops and he camps out on this man, Abram, or later Abraham. God promises that he will give this elderly couple, Abram and Sarai, a son. The son of promise. Even though Sarai is barren, God will give them a son. And anyone who's been reading Genesis 1 through 11 is looking for the next one. But there's this delay, this very significant delay. But there's promise in the midst of the delay. There's promise. And just let me say this. Promise holds us in waiting. We want it now. Just like when we were kids. Just like all of our kids. We want it right now. Right now. The way of faith is the way of waiting. In chapter 21, this son whose name is Isaac, is finally born. Finally born to a 100-year-old Abraham and a 90-year-old Sarah. And God says to Abraham in chapter 21, verse 12, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So yes, it is true, as we discussed a little while ago, that there is a plurality. There is a multiplicity to these offspring promises made to Abraham. We saw that a moment ago with the nations, right? You have Keturah's sons, and you have all of these people coming off of that line. And then you've got Ishmael and the 12 princes. You've got all of these descendants coming off of that line. There is a plurality. There is a multiplicity. But there is also a singularity. There is a particularity. There is one son. One nation, one line, and ultimately one great descendant. And that's why we read in Genesis 22, verses 17 to 18, your offspring shall possess the gate. I love these little details. Your offspring shall possess the gate of his 
enemies. One. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. This is Paul's point in Galatians 3. He, Paul, the Hebrew scholar, the Pharisee of Pharisees, the guy who knows the text, has memorized the Hebrew Bible and spent his life studying it under the best teachers of the law who persecuted Christians. He's the kind of guy Jesus runs into in the Gospels. This is a guy who has spent a lifetime studying it. And he explains to us in Galatians 3. It does not say offsprings. It says one. One who will conquer. One who will bring blessing to the whole world. And we know, of course, that this is Jesus. This is Yeshua. This is the Savior. This is the Redeemer. This is the Deliverer. This is the Son of Man. The Son of God. The Lion of the tribe of Judah. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Light. The Word. Life. This is who's coming. I want to just take a moment here just to say that one of the things studying Genesis should do for us and I hope has done for us, is deepened our understanding of Christ. As I said before, has this time in Genesis deepened your understanding of Christ? Christ is not just sort of a phantom figure that floats down out of heaven in the first century. And now he's just a a general kind of savior for the world. And and we believe in him. We don't know much about kind of how he's situated in redemptive history. But we just believe in him and there you go. I hope that seeing Christ. Christ here in these early pages of the Bible helps us to understand more who he is. Why is this important? Because Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18 that as we behold his glory, we are transformed from one degree of glory to another. In other words, what I'm saying is that genealogies in Genesis can sanctify us. That's incredible. That that really doesn't jive. I mean, what? Hold on a second. How? Because in this story, in this Christ-centered, Christ-saturated story, we are seeing the glory of the Son of God. And by seeing the glory of the Son of God, by seeing all of his contours, historically and prophetically, our hearts are moving towards him and taking hold of him as this grand cosmic redeemer. Not a little savior. He's the savior of the universe. The word through whom all things were made. This is sanctifying stuff. Even here. That is what chapter 25, this singularity, this particularity through Isaac, which ultimately points to Christ. That's what chapter 25 shows us. In the midst of these many sons, there is one. So I want to go through the passage now a little bit and show us how the emphasis is being placed on the one son. We see this when we compare Isaac with Keturah's sons. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 is of particular importance here. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. All he had. But to the sons of his concubines, and here I think this probably includes Hagar as well. Hagar and Keturah being distinguished from the wife, Sarah. 
these two women. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. By the way, any reader of Genesis knows that this imagery of being sent east is reminiscent of Genesis chapter 3. When the humans, the first humans, Adam and Eve, are sent out of the garden at the east eastern gate. So to go out of the eastern gate means that you go east. And Cain is sent east. And in a sense, what we're talking about here is going away from the presence of God, the presence of God's blessing, his covenant. So they are sent east. We see here inheritance versus gifts. Isaac is the heir. Not these sons. Isaac is the heir. Like Ishmael earlier, Keturah's sons are sent away, but Isaac stays. He stays put. They are separated from his inheritance so as not to pose any future threat. So we see this, this air, this singularity in the comparison between Isaac and Keturah's sons. But we also see it as we come to compare Isaac with Ishmael. Although Ishmael is born first, Isaac is listed first at Abraham's burial. So look at verse 9. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him. Ishmael's mother is called Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's servant. Whereas Isaac's mother is called Sarah, Abraham's wife. Most significantly, God's special blessing on Abraham passes not to Ishmael, but to Isaac. And this is, verse 11 is so important at this juncture in the the story of Genesis. Verse 11, after the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son. Remember, that's the word of chapter 12. Blessing, blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will bless you greatly. Blessings, blessings, blessings all throughout this story. Now Abraham dies. God's blessing, his covenant, his special relationship passes to Isaac and is there just as much with Isaac as it was with his father. We will, of course, see this pass to Jacob and then to his sons and through Judah will be King David. And through David will be the Christ. And finally, the genealogy of Ishmael is given quickly. This is, notice this. This is really interesting. This genealogy of Ishmael is almost like a dot on the map. It's given so, so quickly so as to show, yes, God provided for Ishmael. And God fulfilled his word to Ishmael. And then it just removes him. A really quick rendition Of his descendants. And then he's removed from the picture. Verse 17. These are the years of the life of Ishmael. 137 years. He breathed his last and died. And was gathered to his people. That's it. We're done with Ishmael. But in verse 19. We have a contrast. Because it picks up with a lengthy story. Focused on the one. Focused on the heir. Focused on Isaac and his sons. And it's not until chapter 35 that we read of Isaac's death. So going all the way from chapter 25 to 35, we are dealing with Isaac and his sons. Chapter 35, verses 28 to 29. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died, and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. So we're entering into a new story focused on the next one in the line. 
And this description of Isaac as old and full of days brings us to our last point for today as we consider Abraham's death and burial. So now we're going to look at the land. So we've seen the nations. The genealogies point to the nations. The promise that many nations would come from him. The genealogies say fulfilled or in the process of fulfillment. Then we see the heir. Isaac is lifted up above all of the others. Now we come to the land. We're looking at the finale of faithfulness, this final scene of Abraham's life in which all of these promises of God to Abraham shine forth in their fulfillment. And now we come to his death and burial. Look at verses 7 to 10. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life. 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Now, let me just make a quick note before I keep reading. This is a fulfillment of a, and I haven't even treated this as a main idea. This is just a little point. This is just a little fulfillment. But God had promised Abraham in chapter 15, verse 15, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. So we see here this this fulfillment to Ishmael and this fulfillment to Abraham. So I read on. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. This, of course, has to bring us back to Sarah's burial in chapter 23. We remember that. It wasn't too long ago that we were there. Abraham had acquired a cave, you remember, where he could bury Sarah. And that cave was in the land of Canaan. It was in the promised land. And it was a significant purchase of property. It's interesting, the language that is used back in chapter 23 to describe this property. I'll read it to you, 2317. The field... Listen to the language. The field with the cave that was in it and and all the trees (laughs) that were in the field throughout its whole area. You see the language there is very much focusing on a a quite a significant little purchase. Not a big purchase, a little purchase, but it's a, a significant little purchase of land property. And here in chapter 25, Abraham's body is laid to rest with Sarah in the cave. And by the way, It's amazing to me. Abraham and Sarah are buried in that cave. Later, Isaac and Rebekah will be buried in that cave. And Jacob and Leah will be buried in that cave. It's incredible to think that three patriarch families, the three patriarch couples there that would lead to Christ because it's through Leah the, the despised wife, remember Rachel was the one Jacob loved, but it's the despised wife who was thrown upon him, quite literally, we'll get there. But Leah, she is, she's kind of pushed to the side, but it's through Leah that Judah comes, and it's through Judah that the Christ will come. So there we have these three pillars buried in this, in this cave. This possession of land property brings us back to the beginning of Abraham's story. When God first came to him, he said, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land. Follow this to the land that I will show you. I'm going to show you a place, Abraham, a place for you and your descendants. 
but I'll tell you later. I'm not going to tell you yet. Then when Abraham got to the land of Canaan, God said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So Abraham is wandering around. He's just going. He's following the Lord. And when he comes to the land of Canaan, God says, here it is. It's this land that I will give to you and your offspring after you. Then later in that land, God said to him this, lift up your eyes. This is after Lot leaves and takes the best land. There's Abraham without his nephew. Lot's going off to the best land, just as happy as he could be. Nice green grass. God says to Abraham, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. So why is it significant that Abraham is buried in this land? The answer really is twofold. First, this partial ownership anticipates full ownership in the future. This is a, a small little meager piece of property, but it is a, in that sense, substantial piece of possession in the promised land. It's a kind of a down payment. It's an assurance of what is to come. Second, this burial in the land of promise shows that Abraham died in hope, in hope of fulfillment, full fulfillment for his offspring, hope of future life in the land. And it's interesting as we think about Abraham dying in hope, the Sadducees believed in Jesus's time that there was no afterlife. They believed there was nothing after death. And Jesus corrects them saying, yes, there is. And he refers to Abraham. He says, I am the God. He he refers to God speaking in the Old Testament. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And here's Jesus's interpretation. He says to them, he is not God of the dead, but of the living. In other words, Abraham lives now, Jesus is saying. And that's why we get this language that he's gathered to his people. What in the world does that mean? There's only Sarah's bones in that cave. What does it mean that he's being gathered to his people? That line of faithful people in the past, people like Enoch, people like Noah, and so forth. That's where Abraham goes. We go somewhere when we die. We're gathered somewhere. When we die. Gathered to his people. Luke 16, 22, Jesus tells a story of the rich man and Lazarus. And he says, Lazarus is this poor man who has nothing. And the rich man just stores up for himself. It says, the poor man died and was carried by the angels. Where? To Abraham's side. The rich man died and lifted up his eyes in hell, it says. In great torment, wanting just a drop of water on his tongue. That's hell. And that will happen for every person who does not know Christ. Be assured of that. You can live in delusion your whole life and die and go to hell where there will be torment 
and the desire for a single drop of water. But not not Lazarus. He was carried by the angels of God. That's what will happen to us when we die. Carried by the angels of God to Abraham's side. There is life after death. Abraham died in hope. So Abraham is now in the presence of the Lord. His body was buried in this cave in Canaan. But one day when his descendant, Jesus Christ, returns, Abraham's body will be raised and reunited with his soul. And and in fact, what we talked about last week, 1 Corinthians 15, is relevant for Abraham. That, That Christ, when he comes back, will raise Abraham's body. When Christ comes back, he will raise Job's body. Job Job says, my redeemer lives and I will see him in my flesh. Job sees God now spiritually as a disembodied spirit. His soul is with God. But one day Job will see God, the son in his flesh. Christ will come back. Christ was raised. We looked at that last week. Christ will return. And he will raise these ancient bones of Abraham from the dead and us as well. He will be raised to inherit the land in which he is buried. Yes, he will inherit this land of Canaan, but even more, he will inherit the whole earth. Blessed are those, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, Jesus says in Matthew 5, 5. And if you noticed earlier when Pete read to us Romans four thirteen, what does it say about Abraham in those words? It says that he is heir of the world. Abraham is not just heir of this little strip of land in the Middle East called Palestine. He's heir of the whole world. He'll inherit it all. When the sons of glory are revealed, Romans 8, the whole earth will be remade. And Abraham and all of God's people will inherit the world. Matthew eight eleven, Jesus says, Many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. This will happen. And we'll be reminded even of this very day, I hope and pray I will, that in that day, we will recline with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Whatever it is that looks like, I have no idea really, but we'll be there with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob reclining in our glorified, raised bodies in the kingdom of heaven, if we know Christ, the seed of Abraham. So here, in chapter 25, God's promise of the land comes to its fullest realization in the life of Abraham. Buried in partial fulfillment, but buried in hope of full fulfillment in the life to come. And that's why the writer of Hebrews describes Abraham this way. Chapter 11, verse 13, that Abraham died in faith, not having received the things promised. And maybe you're thinking that, maybe you're thinking, come on, this is not a fulfillment. This little bit, this little cave in this field with some trees, this is not a fulfillment. Well, that's partially true. Hebrews eleven thirteen, 13, as he says, not having received the things promised. It's just a little taster. It's just a tiny little pointer. But this is what he goes on to say. But having seen them and greeted them from 
afar. His faith reached into history and he took hold of the promises of God from afar. And as Christ himself will say, Abraham saw my day and was glad. Abraham knew more than we would give him credit for that his descendant would be one deliverer, savior. And Abraham in some way saw this in the future. And he died clinging to it. There's a vast difference between a person who dies without this hope and a person who dies with this hope. And maybe you've seen that in your own life as sad as it is, as heart-wrenching as it is. People we know and love who've died without this hope. They have nothing to hope in. But, but the gym, the gym and a diet or something like that. They have nothing to hope in. But, but their children and their spouse. And all that fades away. And they die. Maybe alone. With nothing. The Christian never dies alone. Doesn't matter what rest home you find yourself in. Doesn't matter. The Christian never dies alone. And never dies without hope. So Christian... Offspring of Abraham by faith, know this. In the future, we will share in Abraham's inheritance. His story is our story. These genealogies are relevant to us. We're reading the story of God's plan for us, God's inheritance for us. This is our father, Abraham. God's faithfulness to him is God's faithfulness to us. Delight in these verses. Praise God for these verses because it is a matter of personal faithfulness. Not obscure, antiquated, distant, far, far in the past. Weird, strange, foreign, but personal for me, relevant today. One day. We will inhabit this land as John describes in Revelation 21, 1 to 4. And I close with this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem. Coming down out of heaven from God. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them. As their God, he will wipe away every Tear, every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. These are just former things. In the scheme of things, these are just former things. This is our promised home. Let's pray.
Our Father, we thank you for the hope of glory which we find even in a text like this. We thank you for the seed, the Satan crusher, the one who delivers us from this present evil age. A world in rebellion against you as the king, as God, as supreme ruler of all things, creator of things visible and invisible. Father, we are humbled as we consider how undeserving, how deeply undeserving we are, for we are rebel sinners. God, we have transgressed your law. We have replaced you with other gods. We have murdered people in our own hearts. We have lusted and committed adultery in the heart. We have coveted our neighbor's things, our neighbor's very life. We have sinned against you and using your name in vain. We have trampled on the day of worship. We have dishonored our mothers and our fathers. We are rebels against a holy and just sovereign king. And yet, you put our sin upon your son. That we would be free, relieved of the, of the pain of this guilt as, as Christian and Pilgrim's Progress is carrying all that weight upon his back, crushed by sin, its guilt. Then you have removed it and put it on your own son. God, we praise you. Would everyone in the hearing of my voice right now turn to Christ? God, would we trust Christ? Confess our sins. Confess that we've sinned against you, that we need a savior, and that through Christ we can be forgiven of all of our sins and have the hope of eternal life. Thank you, God, for this reminder, even here, that you are a promise-keeping God that you will not leave us in the dust, but you will raise us to share the reign of Christ. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.